Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Kuides, kuides, which is, of course, Albanian for Achtung, Achtung. Uh, some of you may well have seen a show called Wife Swap on TV, which wasn't exactly as advertised. <laughs> well, last week, We Have Ways to Make You Talk took a dangerous step and a giddy step in this direction. James and I discussed the likely outcome if the Germans had fought behalf of the Japanese in Asia while the Japanese defended Normandy against the invading allies. It was fascinating and utterly ridiculous. It was. Uh, yes, yeah, so if you've come to the right place, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's the kind of nonsense you get served up in this podcast. If you like your history safe and sensible, look elsewhere. Right, down to business. If you're downloading this podcast in the week we send it kicking and screaming into the world, then it's a very significant moment in time. 75 years ago this very week, a battle was being fought for the beating heart of La France. The Allied forces began the liberation of Paris on the 19th of August, 44. The German garrison surrendering just six days later on the 25th. Now, Giacomo Hollande is with me as ever. (laughs) That, by the way, is Italian for James Holland. Well, let's talk about Paris, Giacomo, shall we? Yeah, well, Paris and the end of the Normandy campaign, which was, um, was, was... Saw some of the most horrific scenes of any fighting anywhere in the Second World War, I would argue. Because after all, the 19th is before uh, the Battle of Falaise Gap ends, which I think ends yes. on the 21st. 21st, yeah. 77 days of the Normandy campaign finally over. And it is absolutely horrific in yeah. that corridor of death, as it becomes known. So yeah. bad that um, in sort of... Uh, um, some, um, 
uh, St. Laurent, uh, Sur Dive, and Chambois, and all these sort of yep. places, and Moissy, this little ford that they cross. Um, people can't live there for th- about three years because the flies are so thick in the summertime, yep. and it's just horrendous. Yep. I mean, absolutely yeah. horrific. The photos that you can see that were taken by the Allies at the end of that absolute carnage are totally horrific. Well, it's that famous picture, isn't it, up the road at Montormel where the Poles fought exactly. their last stand, where there's knocked-out vehicles, and I think there's a knocked-out panther, isn't there? And that road is thick with dead horses and dead men. Yep. Because after all, after all, the Germans are, 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 are largely horse-drawn as well. So yes, you've they got are. you've got that too. And I remember talking to a typhoon pilot who said, who was part of the you know the sort of rolling cab rank of airstrikes on on the German traffic jam. You could smell it in your plane. Yeah thousands yeah. of feet up in the sky the putrefying flesh and uh, and the burning flesh as well yeah. so it just yeah. it, it, it's it's an ugly little ugly end to the um normandy campaign isn't it with the german army it trapped. really is and they're just they're just absolute absolutely slaughtered you know it, it it's allied guns all zeroed in on those roads um allied fighters just coming in and strafing them and although you know rocket firing typhoon is unlikely to knock out a panther tank the panther can't move because yeah in front of it and behind it and either side of it is absolutely completely shot up i mean really really shocking pictures of carnage and someone has actually done and worked out exactly the entire detail of the corridor of death and all those different roads and what has been shot out where and it is i mean it's forensic that kind of sort of forensic detailed work that kind of serious world war ii geeks do and thank goodness they do do it but it is absolutely fascinating and horrific in equal measure i mean you know you just can't help but be sickened well, fr- and appalled and overawed yeah. by what happened yeah. a friend of mine has a has a, a holiday home near Chambois and, and she says they find stuff in the in the garden all the time i can well imagine it i can well imagine and it. bits and pieces of stuff but 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 the you know the two german armies that are fighting in it just completely implode i mean you know out of yeah. two and a half thousand um, um, armoured fighting vehicles that Germans have in Normandy like two dozen barely get away yeah. um, hardly anyone does and they, they just scarper across the Seine as quickly as they possibly can and, and Paris is kind of effectively open and then of course there is this big moment where von Choltitz who has been sent to take over the control of planet from, from I think it's Stupnagel um, because he's an ardent Nazi and he's going to do what the Fuhrer says, yeah, doesn't do what the Fuhrer says because the Fuhrer says, says blow up Paris and destroy it before you know before the Allies get to it, and he doesn't. Yeah, but the but the but the interesting thing, isn't it, is that is, is that Eisenhower didn't have Paris on his shopping list really at all. The the the, the, the Overlord mission is to is to trap and destroy the German forces, and and not and Paris is seen as not 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 a worthwhile. Um, uh, military target is it? It's obviously it's a political no. target, not a military one, because no. you don't want to get involved in a great big battle in a city like like Stalingrad or or Leningrad, a siege like that. Absolutely you don't want not. that. You don't want that to happen. No. So so what? And what you're there to do is annihilate the German army. So it's quite interesting then that that um, it's Patton, isn't it? Who who isn't necessarily occupied in the heavy lifting of fillets and he's gone round underneath. Yeah underneath the pocket you know first he breaks west and then he breaks he breaks east uh le mans comes in under the uh, under the main normandy action yeah 
And he and sort of swings around and eventually comes straight, directly from yeah, the south. Exactly. And it's Garau, and it's, and it's Garau, Garau's division, isn't it, that Leclerc, uh, uh, army that Leclerc is part of as well. Yes, I, I think right it's the second that? armoured division, isn't it? Because the first armoured's yeah. been destroyed in, back on the 15th, 16th of May 1940. And yeah. so Leclerc is, uh, is um, Tassigny, is, uh, de Tassigny, isn't he? Is his real name. He is, um, uh, um, he, he's the commander of the second armoured division, which is completely equipped by the Americans. Yeah, and they're the guys who, when they arrive in England um, um, to train, they uh, they're settled outside York, and the first thing they do is hold a memorial service in honour of Joan of Arc, having been yeah. hosted by the British. You know, it's really, <laughs> really, really, really tactful. It's just really hilarious. <laughs> but the, but the interesting thing, though, isn't it? Is it is in June in Italy, uh, Mark Clark goes for Rome. You have the drama of him going for Rome, taking Rome, and putting military policemen on the roads to Rome to stop the British getting involved in taking Rome and all that stuff. Yeah, and the Germans get away. So you can see why Eisenhower, having that, you see that happen. That Eisenhower's saying, "No, we're not going for Paris. Our job is to is to do maximum damage to the German army in in France, and then and then and then people take matters into their own hands." Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there is street fighting in Paris, and and there is yeah. some, you know, suddenly everyone's a resistor and everything, and. Uh, dramatic stuff. The, the, I don't think the description of the fall of Paris has ever been equaled um, better by uh, than that book that was written in the sixties called "Is Paris Burning." Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, I think it's sort of quite a lot of it has been kind of over dramatized. It's very much in the tradition of Cornelius Ryan. It's very kind of first yeah. person led. Yeah. Lots of kind of personal stories. You, you know, you're right. It's sort yeah. of you're, you're following um, the cast list of, of people, but it's utterly compelling story about the fall of uh, about the liberation of Paris, and it's yeah. just completely gripping. It's by two guys, an Israeli guy, I think, it is, or maybe it's a Frenchman and American. I can't remember, but they did a whole series of books. But is Paris Burning is the most famous one, and if but, anyone but gets a chance to read it, it's great. Von, von Scholtitz in his autobiography said, "Yes, I disobeyed the order. Yes, I didn't destroy Paris. I saved Paris." Is that true? Or is it? Was he was he caught with his trousers down? Did he not actually? Did he not actually do the necessary preparation to destroy Paris? What re- what what really happened? Because obviously, if I were in his situation, I'd claim credit. I go, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Paris is still standing because of me. That's the reason there's still an Eiffel Tower and so on. Or is it? Was it actually that he got he got um, caught out by events? Uh, I, I think I think he did make a conscious decision not to destroy it. Uh, I right. really I really do. I, I think you know. Um, I think we can give him that credit. But, you know, being a Nazi general and saying, I disobeyed Hitler, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't give him that much kudos for that, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you know, well done, mate. You know, <laughs> when, when, you, when the city is surrounded by allies, yeah. you know, what do you do? Do you do you do you do you uh, um, do as ordered by the Führer who is in the wolf's lair in Rastenburg in East Prussia, or do yeah. you do what is likely to make you looked upon slightly more kindly by the Allies when they catch you imminently having surrounded yeah. the entire city? Yeah. I, know, I know what yeah. I'd do. The greatest respect well, yeah. to von Scholz. Well, but but the but the, the am I right in thinking the first company of French soldiers into into Paris was actually made up of sp- mainly Spanish Republicans? Yeah, so, I love that story. I am desperately, so cool. desperately trying to find. I've, I've I've put up various feelers. I really want to find 
an eyewitness testimony, a detailed eyewitness testimony of a Spaniard who was fighting with the um, with the French, the FEC, yeah, from southern sixth, France upwards. It was the six, the sixth sixth company of uh, I can't remember. And the, and yeah, they were, they, and they were all part of Apache's Seventh Army as well. There were a whole load of Spaniards in that. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I just really, I really want to read the perspective of a Spaniard fighting in the Second World War on the part of the French, on the part of the Allies. I think that'd just yeah. be so interesting. They must, it must exist. There must be a diary, a memoir, a un- long-lost yeah. account somewhere, but I've yet to find it. Because, because the Spanish involvement wasn't honoured until quite recently, was it, by the, by the French government? They kind of, because it's also embarrassing that the post-war politics around that, isn't it? Well, it's just the whole, the whole of France's legacy in the Second World War is really embarrassing and awkward and poses yeah. all sorts of difficult questions that no one wants to answer. I mean, you know, you, you now have to sort of go, <clears throat> President Mitterrand, don't you? Rather than sort of yeah, go, yeah. President Mitterrand. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of dodgy stuff. And, yeah. you know... The, the occupation was not a time of great glory for the French. It has to be said, you know, with the yeah. best word in the world. I mean, obviously yeah. there were always resistors and some incredibly brave men, but it's um, it's so nuanced. I mean, I think that's what what's still so captivating about it, isn't it? Yeah. You know, French yeah. resistance and stuff, and and, yeah. and who was doing what, and why would you join one side, and what are you trying to do, and how are you trying to just sort of keep your head down and stuff. But, well, but and of what, course, a, what, what a terrible time. And of course, after the event, uh, uh, what would you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know. but I mean, you know, you, you and I have been lucky enough never to live for a civil war. But I mean, how yeah. w- once, once the firing stopped and the kind of peace treaty has been signed, what happens to those villages when you know that, you know, five years ago, you were all living side by side quite happily. And now you suddenly find yourself, you know, with neighbours who you know were on the other side during the war. I mean, how, yeah, how yeah, do yeah. you how do you just move on? I mean, what do you do? Do you do you up sticks and move to Australia? Or, or <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, but, but it must be so difficult. And you just was that. Ama- yeah. There's that, but you must amaze. You must. There's that amazing series called "The Pity and the Sorrow," yeah. that, that documentary um, that was made in the late 1960s, and I think it was banned in France until about 1995 or something because it was just too contentious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's amazing. not. But it's. But it's not. It's not a surprise when you look at, at pre-war French politics, which is this sort of um, completely anarchic. Uh, you know, governments collapsing endlessly, popular yeah. fronts, Pujadists. Yeah. Uh, uh, Coalitions of 12 different parties. And, and exactly, and fascists and communists and, 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 uh, all, and counter-revolutionary and post-revolutionary, you know, all, all, the, all this stuff in the jumble. So that when the, when the Germans come in and take over, you've got people quite clearly either thinking, well, they're here to stay, so I need to resolve myself to it, or yes, I agree with an awful lot of what they say, which is which is... It was clearly what happened, and 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 then and then obviously people thinking, well, this isn't going to last forever. I'm going to hedge my bets. I mean, it's it's so fascinating. I mean, the thing I think is amazing is though is that even in the even Leclerc's victory parade, you know, through the Arc de Triomphe, all those famous pictures, there were still German snipers in the city shooting at the crowds and stuff. I mean, it's yeah, sort why, of um, why would you do that? Well, yeah, what? Yeah, why would you do that? Because you, you you surely think, well, I'll. If I I'll melt my... into the I'll melt into the suburbs. Yeah, I'll melt now. into the suburbs in my field grey. I mean, it's <laughs> complete. It's completely ridiculous. Or I'll go back to my girlfriend's house and and put her put my, put my civvies on. Yeah, I mean, just to put my civvies just, and stay in the garret for a while. It, it, yeah, it's just crazy. And 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 obviously, you know, word would reach like you say, word would reach the wolf's lair, and, and Hitler would go, "Excellent, my men are still resisting." But but whatever i mean it is so strange isn't it mm. and what's interesting i mean you can see why that might also then have fueled at the end because we talked a lot last week about the end of the war why at the end of the war you'd still have you had this worry about werewolf resistance and 
pockets of Nazi resistance and all that sort of thing post-war, that maybe in Paris the snipers put that idea in people's heads that, you know, they're not going to give up yeah. when, they're, when they're plainly beat, even when they've yeah, actually, and it's, and actually surrendered. Yeah, and, it, and it's just, it's snipers, there's nothing like a sniper to kind of really put the fear of God into an awful lot of people. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. if you just don't feel safe to walk across the Place de la Concorde or whatever it might be, yeah, you, you know, that that's just putting an incredible sort of state of fear and anxiety on an entire city, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah, yeah. But, so that was that was 75 go- year, years ago this week. Um, and uh, but, but, I mean, I think what's interesting is this is concurrent with the Falaise battle, is that business, like, like we said right at the start of this, business is not yet concluded in Normandy. And then the great chase to chase the Germans over the, over the Seine and then over the Somme is now on. You know, this is 21st of August, starters' orders, basically, yep. to, get, to get to Brussels, to get to, to get to Antwerp, to get, you know, to get into Belgium. And it's that yep. great chase that then follows. And yeah. So Paris, uh, in a way, is a kind, arguably kind of, it's, 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 it's a good thing politically, uh, but it's not the point. It's not the main event going on right right at this minute. So no, the, the main point is just to chase the Germans as quickly as possible and follow up as quickly as possible. And they yeah. do go at incredible yeah. speed. I remember, you know, the, the Sherwood Rangers Yeoman, which I've mentioned before. I mean, what's yeah. interesting from Stanley Christofferson's diaries, and he's, the, he's the, the, the commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, yeah. is on, I think it is the 22nd of August, they form themselves into a battle group with motorised infantry and motorised artillery, and off they yeah. go. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I thought was really, really interesting about that is everyone sort of goes, wow, you know, the amazing tactical flexibility of the Germans because they can organise themselves into battle groups just are, you know, just like that with a click of the fingers. But actually, by the 22nd of August, so can our guys too. You know, yeah. I mean, if you need to do it, you do it. You know, if you've got, well, to, if you've they- got to exploit, that is an all-arms motorised unit of tanks, artillery and infantry, which is hurtling northwards but that- into, into Belgium. But that's the difference. Two and a half months of fighting the Germans in in Normandy is done to Second Army Group, isn't it? And Second yeah. Armies that basically yeah. they're now super experienced. They now know how to integrate. They've figured it out. This is the thing they've learned in, since D days. They've learned how to integrate. They've shaken down how infantry and armor cooperate and how artillery is I- integral to that. Yeah. And how you work in three dimensions. And you've got your cab rank, cab rank fighter. Yeah. You know tactical fighter thing. And you and. This is the the fruit of the Normandy campaign. Is that but is that actually you've got an army that can exploit in full British Blitzkrieg, you know Blitzkrieg if you want to call it that fashion. Yeah, nice. Like all, that. all yeah, it's all right, isn't it? All, all the way, all the way to all the way to the basically the the hot Dutch border. Yeah, and yeah, it, exactly. And 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 you know, there's this this sort of thing, isn't there? That that that. The, the 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 Germans break out and then there's there's six weeks campaigning in France in 1940 because there's the Somme battle after the after the after Dunkirk you know there's there's still that big battle outside Paris you know that, yep. that, that never get never gets never gets mentioned does it and the French fight in these big hedgehogs and and slow the Germans down it's an appalling attritional thing but the Germans still win but then you've got you've got then you've got what you've got in Normandy is you've got basically I don't know eight ten weeks of campaigning and then. And then a big breakout, and it's sort yeah. of the—it's kind of the same thing in reverse. Arguably. Well, yeah, and exactly, and, and it's kind of you know the, the, the criticism of the British and, and indeed well the Allies per se in in, in yeah. Normandy is that they're slow and stodgy and all the rest of it. But you know you, the, there are plenty of opportunities within the Normandy campaign 
Well, you can see them exploiting and exploiting with speed uh, and in yeah. all arms units. And, you know, Operation Blowcoat, right at the end of July, beginning of August, is, is a classic example of that, where, you know, Second Army is unleashed and, uh, and off they go. And, and they do really, really well. And, of course, you know, post-Cobra as well for the Americans. They suddenly yeah. go absolutely hell for leather. And, yeah. and you're seeing the same at the end of the Normandy campaign. So this kind of sort of tarring the Allies with the same brush of being kind of slow and stodgy and the Germans all being kind of tactically uh, um, versatile is absolute bollocks well yeah it does it certainly doesn't add up now <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway uh, well so there we go that's the liberation of paris ahead of schedule of course yes uh, d- exactly day 90, day 90 on the phase lines yeah wasn't it 77 in yeah. reality so nearly two yeah. weeks quicker than than anticipated then- Okay, well, I'll tell you what, um, it's time for a short break. But before we do, uh, can I just thank whichever of our listeners has just been on holiday to the small Italian town of Biella in Piedmont. Is it Piedmont? 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 Piedmont. Piedmont, okay. Whoever it was listened to 15 episodes of We Have Ways this week. (laughs) It's like we were on holiday with you. I mean, that's extraordinary. Good effort. How relaxing is that? (laughs) (laughs) Hold that thought back in a jiffy. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I mentioned in the last episode that we're planning to bring you a daily podcast during the nine days of Operation Market Garden, September 17th to the 25th. It's 75 years since the famous airborne operation, and we'll be looking at the battle from all aspects, which should hopefully provide plenty of talking points. And if there's one battle that people like to talk about, it's the Battle of Arnhem, let's be honest now. But now, let's get let's <laughs> well, get we started. Anyway. Well, well, I think an awful lot of people do. Um, let's get stuck into your questions. Some crackers on Twitter. Remember the hashtag, we have ways. Um, now, of course, uh, here we go. Uh, last week, of course, we did emails um, uh, uh, brought to us by the old, which has led to someone on the email going, I am not old, I just don't like Twitter. No, you're old. Simple <laughs> as that. Right. So... Ben Rosk asks, um, hi guys, I'm really loving the podcast. I think it would make a great TV program. (laughs) Well, uh, we could always set up a camera in my kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, when you go to Arnhem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Anyway, I was wondering if you think there are any big bits of information still to emerge about World War II, which is still classified as secret. Or has everything been released by the Allied governments and we know more or less everything? Thanks, Ben. Well, I think you can break this question up because I think there must be. There are obviously some things that are still classified secret. Some of them might be big. Some of them might be things that confirm things that you heavily suspect. You know know what I mean? I mean, maybe locked away in a vault somewhere, there's Churchill knowing perfectly well that there is going to be no invasion. You, 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 you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the, I think the, there is quite a lot. I think there's also, the, there is just so much paperwork from yeah. the Second World War. That there's lots of stuff that, it's not that it hasn't been declassified, it's just that it hasn't been discovered. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's particularly noticeable, I, think, I would say, you know, when I've been to, to Freiburg, for example, which is where the, um, the German National Military Archives are sent down in the, in the Schwarzwald and the Black Forest. And it's amazing. And, and you know, you can always tell when someone hasn't looked at a big file for a, an awful long time. And I remember looking at some some German documents and, you know, you get these big files and there's dust on them and the paper stuck yeah. together and the, 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 little, the little staple or paper clip has gone rusty. And you just know that no one has looked at this from certainly not since 1953, but probably not since 1945. And, and you're looking at it for the first time in many, 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 many years and that no one has ever 
written about this in a book or mentioned it on a TV programme or not. And that, that's quite yeah. exciting. But I think there's yeah. one big thing which I know hasn't been declassified. Um, uh, obviously, there is the uh, Rudolf Hess stuff. That hasn't. Yeah. Uh, and we, yeah. Uh, uh, nor has all the stuff on the Duke of Windsor. Um, no. uh, and the other one is the mafia and the mafia's involvement in the um, uh, the Allied invasion of Sicily, which is something I'm looking into right now. Uh, and it is really, really fascinating. Careful, James. <laughs> Careful. We don't want you in. I don't want you in a concrete overcoat at the butt. <laughs> at the... <laughs> You're not showing me enough respect. Um, but... but um... <laughs> Yeah, but it is, you know, there's absolutely no question that the, the the mafia was pretty much, it wasn't dead and buried, but it was certainly kind of on the almost dead side of dormant by 1943. You know, that Mussolini's Italy had um, had really, really clamped down hard on the mafia. Um, but Don Carlo Vizzini was still kind of, you know, the senior Don in, in Sicily at the time. And he was absolutely without question in negotiation with with the Allies, particularly through Italian-Americans who were kind of in New York, who were kind of coming over from the dark side to support the Allies. And deals were struck. What we don't know is the absolute details of it. But we know that right. Vito Genovese was was involved, who was a, a guy who, who was, you know, basically was done for murder and, and fled back to Sicily. Um, we know that Lucky Luciano was involved, um, you know, some, some really bad people involved in it. And wow. we also know that there is just beyond doubt that when Patton's, um, Patton's guys kind of started moving west towards Palermo, it was unbelievably easy. And the Italians were, the largely Sicilian coastal naval troops were just laying down their, their, um, their, their, arms in droves uh, and they were encouraged to do so by the mafia what so this is the suggestion the mafia were bought off or the mafia were told you can have sicily when the when the yeah you, you, the you, de facto you help us government. you help us and then we, you scratch our back we'll yeah we'll scratch yours, yours. And, and there is also no question that due to the second world war the mafia is now you know rose again after the second world war whether it would, yeah. have, would have done without the allies help or not is is you know to be confirmed or, or to be discussed, but well, but, but, but a, they certainly were kind of pretty much finished beforehand, and they certainly have have been but, ever stronger ever since. But, because it was a big part of the Mussolini government's selling point that they dealt with the mafia, wasn't it? it was yeah, one they, of the and they, they really did, and they really, really did. They yeah. really did clamp down on on you know, I mean, a, you know, a gangster state, you could argue, yeah, uh, getting rid of another gang, as it were. But 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 they did make it. They they made they were tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. They absolutely to, were. To coin, to coin a more recently used phrase, I mean, it, it's and it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because because the Allies arriving, you can you can see that if you're letting the Matthew, that's a ge- heck of a genie you're letting out of the bottle, isn't it? Yeah, really, really is. Um, and and Don Carlo, who was this? I mean, even by the by the Second World War, I think he was in his late sixties. He was a kind of short little guy. Used to wear shirts with no tie, with no sleeve. So sort of you know short sleeve shirts. Um, yeah. And never wore a jacket, and had a, a massive paunch, and had his trousers with his braces right up to kind of you know above his belly button. Little round glasses looked really kind of. Yeah, he didn't look like. Well, and I suppose he maybe he did look like a don. I don't know, but he, 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 yeah. he you know, he looked very kind of sort of um, uh, undynamic, but was this absolute firebrand? And you know, he rode on the back of a tank, a Sherman tank, into Palermo. You know, amazing. It was absolutely amazing scenes, amazing story. But but after that, then then you know, corruption started coming in really big because yeah. the guy who was yeah. made the first American Allied military government 
um, uh, a governor of Palermo is a chap called Charles Paletti. And he was also yep. total badass. And he very, very quickly got under the thumb of Vito Genovese. He was like an out and out crook. I mean, you know, he was a he was a he was a bandit in a gangster in, in the USA, fled back to Sicily unveiled his way back into the Allies. Yeah, you know, I know all these people. Trust me, I can do up a deal and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I can be a translator for you. All the while, kind of absolutely just cornering the black market. Yeah. With with bungs to, to Charles Paletti. Paletti, later in the war, becomes um, governor of, of Naples. Uh, and Vito Genovese then runs this massive racket all around Naples. So where's this? Where's this? Where will you find the classified documents about this? Is this going to be an American? Yeah, yeah, uh, it is. I some spe- American I that, yeah. r- record vault or the FBI or I mean, yeah, I think it, they are held by NARA, which is the National Archives and Records Administration. It's equivalent of the kind of National Archives in the UK, yeah, uh, or the PROs it used to be called. Um, they're there somewhere. It's just they haven't been declassified. But I've, I'm going to have a really good squirrel around in in queue actually, because um, which is the National Archives over in the UK, because yeah. I reckon there's all sorts of stuff on, on in, in there and lots of stuff has been declassified i just know that the the uh officially the mafia stuff hasn't been declassified but i reckon there might be there might be kind of hints and leaks and kind of little bits of stuff one can piece together might there not be concerned letters back to london saying all from, that kind from of our, yeah. our, our, our chap in Palermo going you won't believe what yeah. what's going on yeah we were trying we were trying to do a deal with the communists and they've got the mafia involved. You know, because that's that what it'd be all about, all the competing factions as much yeah, as anything else. Exactly that. Exactly yeah, yeah. that. I, I, mean, mean, talking, I mean, the mafia, one of the things they were talking about was becoming independent of the rest of Sicily and becoming a part of yeah. Britain. Actually becoming a, a protector of Britain or a protector of the United States or something. I mean, that, that, that kind of language is being talked about. I just think all that is just so fascinating because it's kind of sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's the dark side sort of stuff, isn't it? But it's, Sicily... Sicily had been a protector of Britain. Nelson was governor of Sicily. Yes, in he the, was. In, yeah. uh, wasn't he? Because of the lime juice out of uh, Sicily, incredibly important to the Royal Navy in a previous in a previous uh, similar global conflict. Now, um, I mean, the other thing I th- we were talking about Paris earlier on is after the. Uh, am I right in thinking uh, and corruption? After the liberation of Paris, am I right in thinking that that the, basically the American quartermaster general set up in the Georges Saint Hotel or one of the big swanky hotels in Paris and basically lived the absolute life of lobster luxury. Yes, I can't and, remember. Was and, he I Lee? can't remember. His, I can't, Lee or something like that. It's something like that. And and he was absolutely left. Some lieutenant general, quartermaster general of the of the, of the American uh, army, totally bent. Yes, and uh, and like the, the utterly corrupt. Yeah. And running a great big fucking racket, and it, I mean, just amazing. And that, you know, a whole other side to things that that you know, when you're talking that if 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 you came to this via band of brothers with sort of noble flags and solo trumpets playing as we nobly remember the greatest generation, there's also all the other people at the other yeah. end of the supply chain filling their boots and smoking cigars in silk pyjamas eating lobster in Paris well this is this is one of, yeah you're absolutely right and Charles Paletti falls under exactly the same category you know governor yeah. of governor of, first of all of, of, of Palermo then of Naples which is the biggie and he's yeah. just as bent as they come I mean he's so corrupt it's not true and this is what Keith Lowe's been writing about and I think it's called yeah. The Fear and the Loathing or something like that The Fear and the Freedom yeah. well, I can't remember a book he wrote about about the immediate aftermath of the Second World War and, and how we how we look upon the Second World War yeah. And how today, you know, anyone who was anything to do with the Second World War is a complete hero. He's a he hero. Out that yeah. Not everyone was. I mean, you know, lots yeah. of people were complete cowards and absolutely useless and really yeah. didn't contribute a lot. Yeah. And those so guys you absolutely the- worked in the adverse. So, so that, if I was so- looking for, for kind of, you know, real, really good 
uh, documents that still need to be unclassified. I mean, I don't really care about whether Mountbatten was gay or something. I mean, that's been kind of no. about for ages, you know, so what? But, but, yeah. but, but there's also no way there's also no way of actually ever knowing that whereas if there's a document that that is signed off by uh, a, you know a Hoover saying yeah okay we we let's do it for the sake of the war let's do a deal with the mafia i mean bingo yeah. amazing i mean you're not going to find that but you never know you never know Never know. Never right, know. okay. Now, Ian Holloway asks, we have Waze podcast up to the usual high standard. That, uh, we've only done 21 and we already have a usual high standard. That's James. good. About that? That's very good. <laughs> we hear a lot about U-boats, but very little about allied submarines. How effective were they? Keep it up, highlight of my Wednesday morning. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Allied submarines were incredibly successful. I mean, actually, the British, I mean, the Royal Navy had more U- submarines rather than U-boats than the Germans had U-boats in 1939, which is, you know, a lot, a lot of people know that. Um, and were absolutely vital in the, um, um, you know, in the Mediterranean. I mean, they played an absolute crucial role. I mean, the 10th submarine flotilla operating out of Malta was was sinking legendary numbers of of, of of Axis shipping. And actually, HMS Upholder um, was the most successful Allied submarine of the entire war in terms of tonnage sunk. I think it sunk right. something like 128,000 tonnes worth of Axis shipping. Um, and, wow. and actually, the commander um, of HMS Upholder was a chap called Lieutenant Commander David Wanklin, known as his friends, uh, known to his friends as Wanks, obviously. Right. Uh, <laughs> Although whether he did or not, who knows? But he was married, and he was—he was a very, very great man. I knew his—I <laughs> knew his number one, he, um, uh, his second in command, a chap called Tubby Crawford. He yeah. was just the loveliest bloke ever. I mean, he was completely amazing. Anyway, there was a very, very famously in May 1941, they sank the Conti Rosso, which was an 18,000 yeah. ton troop ship with, with you know, pretty much all hands on deck lost. And um, they did this by going their Asdick was out of um, was was on the blink, which was you know effectively their their sonar. And yep. uh, they they sunk the Conti Rosso by going underneath the destroyer escort screen, getting within an inch of the Conti Rosso and basically shooting it at point blank range. Um, they were then hell. depth charged thirty eight times. And I do remember asking Tubby, I was saying, God, you know, that must have been pretty hairy. And he said, Well, you know, the boat would shake around a little bit, and bits of corking would be coming on your head and stuff. And uh, <laughs> yes, it was a little bit hairy. God. <laughs> you know. But anyway, but, but he got he got a DSC for that, but Wankling got a VC for that action. Right. <laughs> and there's this brilliant bit in the time Times of Malta kept going every every single day of the entire siege of Malta. Throughout every single day of the war. And there's this bit in December nineteen forty one where where the announcement comes out and they interview him and they said, you know, so we asked um Lieutenant Commander Wanklin if there was one word with which he could um that he thought best described the characteristics needed to be a successful submariner. And it said, Lieutenant Commander Wanklin carefully stroked his beard for a moment and then turned to us and said, imperturbability. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. So Tubby then got sent home to do his perisher, you know, do his, yeah. his submarine commander course and, and return to the Mediterranean on HMS Unseen. Um, and uh, Upholder, at the height of the siege of Malta in the kind of spring of 1942, was, was having this terrible time. And they were on their... They, they left, um, they left um, um, port in, in Valletta Grand uh, Marsemachet Harbour on something like the 20th of April 1942 and they were going to do one more combat mission and then head off yeah. to Gibraltar and then to home and they they were lost on the en route and that was it so did 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 allied u-boat uh, allied sub action um account for more tonnage of lost um axis shipping 
than the other way around. Did, did, did the U-boat, who sunk the no. most shipping? U-boat sunk, sunk considerably more because they were considering more uh, in, in terms of the Mediterranean and, and in terms of British. But but um, I think the American submariners sunk, sink, sunk more than anything. I mean, right. if I'm right, it's something like the Japanese started with something like six and a half million tonnes of shipping yeah. when they entered the war in December 1941. And by surrender in 1945, they had something like 340,000 tons left that they could use. Bloody hell. Yeah. They had on paper, they had something like 1.2 million tons, but only 340,000 tons of it was actually... So 90% 90 of their shipping. Yeah, and it was all sunk by kind of largely, not entirely, but largely by American submarines. And and, and US submarine warfare has just been completely forgotten in all the excitements of Iwo Jima and Saipan and Okinawa and, and, and Guadalcanal and everything. But it was absolutely amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. I mean, you showed up that book the other day that we've both been sent, that lovely new book yeah. um, with all the stats and, and, yeah. and charts and graphs and stuff. There's a there's a bit in that book, if I remember rightly, showing a, a graph of, of kind of um, Japanese uh, um, shipping that's sunk. It is absolutely unbelievable. And the... I mean, there's a there's got to be a great book to be done about all that. But I mean, that you yeah. know, the stranglehold of yeah. the American Navy, the submarine service, and the U.S. Navy on Japan did exactly what the U-boats were trying to do in the Atlantic, but didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, it exactly. absolutely ground them to nothing. So by 1944, 87% of Japanese GDP is being processed into the war effort. Eighty-seven percent. You think? You think? We're, what are we? We're like two and a half percent, are we? Three percent in the UK. Yeah. I think the Americans are three and a half or something. Yeah. Germany's like one point eight percent or something feeble. Eighty-seven percent. So what? Well, what? What percentage of the British economy? Although it's hard to measure, isn't it? Because it's the British Imperial and Dominions economy. But what? What percentage of the British economy is going to the war effort at the same time? Wow, it's got to be kind of twenty twenty-five or something, isn't it? Yeah. But still, but still, <laughs> you know, not even close. 87% of everything. I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable. And, and the reason they're having to do that is because, because they're so desperate. So, every, you know, yeah. and this is where the impact of the, of, 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 of the atomic bombs really comes in. I mean, it's such a thorny one. But, but you know, the Japanese was... I mean, they're so fucked by 1945. <laughs> I mean, they, they just are. I mean, it's horrific. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. horrific. And it is... It is, it is superior industrialization it is superior technology yeah. but it is that complete war it is it is air yeah. land and sea it is b29 yeah. super fortresses coming over and fire bombing cities you know relentlessly it is the submarine yeah. war effort it is it is the us navy it is the kind of you know it's 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 that completeness of of the allied effort led obviously dominantly by the americans but with huge contributions from 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 the royal navy and the australians as well i mean let's not get out of it total total stranglehold total Basically. stranglehold yeah. Oh, yeah okay now our last question jim bagnall asks how this is on a slightly smaller scale this how effective were sas operations in france during and after overlord e.g. operations houndsworth bullbasket loyton and wallace and hardy yeah, I think they were pretty successful. I mean, they had some they had some bad moments where they were caught and you know there was one group that was caught and badly badly massacred. Um 
But by and large, they were pretty effective. I mean, what they were trying to do was go in... What the Allies did was they worked out what were the kind of key bits that we need where it would be really helpful to have some really good, effective resistance. And what they recognised was coming straight from from Germany. So so kind of in in eastern France, that would be useful. So that's Houndsworth. Um, yeah. From the south, from the sort of Limoges, Poitiers, Toulouse, that axis of advance straight straight north, you know, yeah. uh, uh, um, sort of Limoges, Poitiers, Le Monde, Rennes, you know, straight up yeah. into Normandy, that would be great, and Brittany. And yeah. actually, 4th SAS um, is the French component, so they're French yeah. troops, and they go in, and their job is to, is to go in and, and organise the local maquis, the local resistance, who are a bunch of kind of ill-trained kind of you know outlaws and get them into some kind of order and give them really firm directives about what they want to do but also operate on their own as well you know so do their own stuff that they need to boss the show but they need to organize all those guys and in all those those three particular um operations are all really successful and 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 actually bull basket is an interesting one because i think it's um oh i can't remember the guy who who's, who's in command of it bill fraser's the one in um I think in, in in I think he's Houndsworth. But anyway, it doesn't really yeah. matter. But 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 um, so they learn, for example, that as Das Wright, the second um, Waffen SS yeah. Panzer Division, are moving north, they've got a big. Um, there's a big sort of tranche of of oil tankers on railways just north of Limoges, I think it is. Um, yeah. And they found out about this on the 12th of June. Um, and Das Reich really need this. This fuel has been sent specifically to fuel Das Reich on their yeah. movement north towards Normandy. Yeah. Um, Bull Basket, the SAS guys, part of one SAS, um, find out about this. They radio through to the UK at about half past two in the afternoon, and at half past six in the evening, uh, approximately, or just you know, a yeah. matter of a few hours later. Mosquitoes from RF Bomber Command come over, shoot up every single one, and destroy them. Uh, and what that shows you is superiority on a number of different levels. Superior, oh, yeah, 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 superior yeah, yeah, technology, yeah. superior ability to use all three services. You've got you've yeah, got yeah. you've got uh, um, clandestine forces behind enemy lines. You've got great intelligence. You've got firepower from the air. I mean, you know, it's like tick, tick, tick. And devolved decision-making as well. So someone's able to make that decision without having to go to all the way up to the top of shape. It's just like, yeah, absolutely, that's what, that's what you're there to do, which is a thing that the Allies are accused of not, of, of, of not being very good at, Yes, is, is, making, is making snap decisions and making devolved decisions. You know, that it was in fact, quite Again, clearly... which is absolute the, nonsense. I mean, because they're perfectly capable of doing that. And, and, and obviously, as you can imagine, Das Reich are already in not a very good mood. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it and it makes them even worse. I mean, you know, they they don't, you know, they're, they're so late to the party getting into getting into Normandy, and that that's one of the reasons. The other thing that's really interesting though is also about Brittany, because um, in Brittany, the uh, resistance is really really well organised, and what they want to do is they want to isolate German units around those those ports. So San Marlo and and and, uh, uh, and some of the others, and they, they want to just make sure that they are not able to kind of you know if they want to move up to Normandy, their life is going to be made absolute hell. And the, the French SS come in and organise it, and also I think Koenig and and um, uh, uh, actually gets parachuted in to kind of help organise it as well. He's in charge of uh, of three French forces. The guy who was the hero of Bir Hakim that we talked about the other week, and. And again, it is really, really effective. But what is also really interesting is there are lots and lots of Mackie groups which don't get any support at all. 
And they're told that what's going to happen is they're going to get arms and, you know, on the signal, they'll rise up yeah. and all the rest of it. And nothing happens. So, you know, <laughs> and, and it is just chaos. And I read the, I can't remember if I mentioned this before or not, but, you know, the Mackie Circuit, which is to the kind of eastern part of Normandy, you know, they get no help whatsoever. And from the moment of the invasion, they're, to, you know, they're, they're listening in on their headsets, waiting for the BBC signal and all the rest of it. And they hear it and they know the invasion's coming and they're expecting arms drops literally every single day. And they never occur. And, and it, what follows is absolute chaos i mean it is it is brutal as you know they all start getting suspicious with one another you know they learn about some girl and apparently she's been sleeping with some gestapo guy and she's a collaborator so they decide to lynch her and hang her and you know i mean it's absolutely appalling the kind of the circle of violence that, that breaks out why were they left out? Were they not trusted? Or, I because mean... the last thing the Allies want when they're suddenly breaking free to the, to the, uh, to the east is lots of resistance types swanning around with sten guns getting in the way. You know, it's, it's absolutely, it is ruthless, the decision-making. So all those places are places where, you know, Houndsworth, Bull Basket, 4th SAS in Brittany, they're all places where none of those operations can get in the way of the main drive of the Allies. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they are, we're not interested. But they're not going to tell the they're not going to tell the resistors that. It's no, just no, of course shit. they're not going to you know, tell. It's them. just yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. tough luck. Wow. Well, there you go. I hope I hope those those questions have been duly answered, uh, James. I think we've fought ourselves to a standstill. I'm calling for a ceasefire until next week. Yeah, but thank you for listening, everyone. Hugely appreciated by both of us. It's a lot of fun to to do this. Yeah. And don't forget, we're serving up a bump per month in September with lots of extra material. Operation Market Garden will be at the heart of it, a subject very close to Al's heart, but, you know, to be fair, mine as well. Uh, and perhaps the most revered <laughs> British defeat of the entire war. But will it be our bridge too far? No, it won't. Did he even say that? We don't know, oh, for heaven's sake. See you next time. <laughs> Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs>